we have another class out that back door and across the hall. And that is going through the book of 2 Corinthians. Dr. Combs, a New Testament scholar, genuinely, retired seminary professor, is teaching that. So if you want to go and be a part of that class, I'm sure you'll, I know you'll benefit from it. But this is the parenting class. We also have for 18 to 25-year-olds the Crossroads class going on. But this is Parenting with Purpose. And if you'll turn in your notes to page 16, and we left off on page 18, but we'll start at page 16 and just catch ourselves up quickly. As you turn to page 16, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. Next week, next Sunday evening at 4.30, is our annual Servants Seminar. And that is for everybody who's a member of our church for sure. If you're not a member of our church but you're taking a serious look, you'll want to know what it is we're going to talk about next week. So you'll want to come to that and we would welcome you to do so. Uh, there's no cost to that. It's 4.30 to 8 o'clock, so we've got three and a half hours together, but an hour of that is a dinner together. So about two and a half hours, I'll be going over things that we hope to accomplish over the next 10 years. We're going to lay out our 10-year plan for our church. So if you could make arrangements for child care and be here for that, then uh, that would be great. I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, that following Saturday, the 12th, is the next brunch at our home. We call it the Newcomer's Brunch. Those of you that have never been to a brunch at our house, even if you've been around here for a long time, consider yourself a newcomer then because we would love to have you. We want everybody to at least one time come to one of those. We also have Old Comer's Brunches. We're going back through our church's directory and inviting people who haven't been for a while to come back to an Old Comer's Brunch. But this is for those who have never been to a brunch at our house. It's on Saturday the 12th at 10 a.m. We need to know, though, if you're coming. So today, before you leave, if you would let the folks at the desk that's out in the lobby know that you're planning to attend, they'll put your name on the list and they'll give you an invitation uh, to, to come to that. We just need to know how much food to prepare for it. And then uh, our celebration dinner. That's our church's anniversary dinner every fall. That's coming up in just a, a couple of weeks on the 13th, two weeks from today, 5 o'clock, and we will just have dinner together. There are tickets, though, that you need to get for that one. That one costs $5 per person, $20 maximum per family. Uh, and you need, you can pick those tickets up at the resource center that's out these back doors and across the, across the hall. And the program for that is just dinner together, but then hearing testimonies of how God has worked in the lives of our people over this last year. So be thinking about that. How has God worked in your life? And the testimony that you can share as praise to God and an encouragement to uh, God's people. Uh, we do that for about an hour, hour and a half, and it's always a very encouraging time. And it is the only time throughout the entire year that we hear testimonies from the church family. So it's uh, it's an important time for, for our church. And then lastly, our next baptism is three weeks from today. Baptism. If you have never been baptized, and baptism according to the Bible means you have been dunked in water, you have been immersed, that's what the word actually baptism means, Baptizo is the Greek word, and it means literally to dip, to immerse. And everybody who was baptized in the Bible was that. They were immersed. And it's a symbol of death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that's why the whole immersion process. And that's why it's important. It's also important that a person is baptized after they have come to Christ, not before. When they've been able to make a conscious and personal decision to come to Christ. And we call that believer's baptism, that you're a believer when you are baptized. So if you were baptized as a baby, 
you obviously weren't a believer at that time. Uh, you didn't know who Christ was or any of that. And then there wasn't the immersion also. So you need to be baptized. Jesus commands that. That's what we're here, here to help you with. If uh, that's never happened with you, pick up a one-page application at the information desk out in the lobby, and you fill that out, turn it into them, and then we'll go from there. All right, we are in our series, Parenting with Purpose, and it's titled that uh, intentionally because we want to know what is the purpose that God has for us in rearing these children that he has gifted to us. What is the purpose? And then identifying the purpose, we want to see how it is that we get there using principles from God's Word. So that's the idea and the reason for the title, Parenting with Purpose. And if you've turned to page 16 in those notes, you see at the top, it says Section 1, Foundations for Parenting. Uh, We today, in fact, in just a little bit, we're going to get to Section 2. But Section 1 is, as the name suggests, uh, laying foundations uh, for the parenting task. And we have looked at what a family is. We've looked at roles that are to be carried out within the family. We've identified, as of a couple of weeks ago, an objective that God gives us for our children. And that is, I've just put it very simply, for our children to become marriageable. So if you have been with us, you've heard me say that the last few weeks. It doesn't mean all of our children will be married. Most of them will. But not everyone does get married. But the objective is still the same, that whether they get married or not, they need to be able to be married, marriageable. And we've seen that that means a few things. That means that uh, the child learns to be independent and the child learns to be social so that they can interact with people, that they learn to be comfortable with members of the opposite sex. Now, where do I get that from? Well, in the second chapter of the Bible, God makes the first man and the the first woman, and he announces uh, his purpose for their union. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 24, For this cause a man and a woman will leave their father and mother and will cleave to their spouse, and these two shall be one flesh. So God's intention is for that to happen. We are given kids who are going to continue then that, that cycle, and we are to prepare them then to be marriageable, to leave the home at some point. Uh, I've mentioned the uh, that that's all things being equal, that there will be kids who don't leave the home because perhaps they have uh, limitations that uh, keep them in the home and require oversight. Uh, so certainly there are always exceptions to that, but God's uh, design is that our children, and most of them will, marry and they will leave the home and they need to become marriageable. Now, you might ask the question, is that a specifically Christian objective that they just become marriageable i mean couldn't somebody become marriageable and not be not be a christian and the answer to that is yes uh, and here's why uh, because i quoted for you genesis 2:24 and genesis 2:24 is as probably most of you know at the very beginning of the bible and it is the creation uh, so the beginning of history the beginning of the earth and the beginning of the first couple adam and eve on earth. And the commands that God gives to them in chapters 1 and 2 are what, are what are called creation ordinances, creation commands. That is, they're given to everybody. They're not specifically Christian. And in order to carry those out, you don't, you don't have to be specifically, you don't have to be specifically Christian. There are aspects of 
making a child sociable and independent and all of that, that just anybody who's committed to that could actually carry out. Now, there are major roadblocks to that because of sin, which comes in in Genesis chapter 3. And we saw in the earlier lessons in this series that sinners being who they are, when you live in a family uh, relationship, there are going to be sins committed against each other, and therefore forgiveness has to be sought, and we had whole lessons on that, and the family being a redemptive community as well. But strictly in the objective of preparing someone to be sociable and to be independent and all of that, you'll find that many of the things that I'm saying in that regard are what are called common grace things. That that anybody who is a creature made in the image of God who is committed to that can carry out. Now we're going to see in the, uh, the next few weeks, as I say, some obstacles that absolutely require a change of heart on the part of the child. That requires a spiritual awakening on the part of the child and specifically Christian teaching and a Christian experience for that child. But if that question has come up in your mind, somebody asked me about it last week, how do you get that from that objective, marriage, and that's how you get it. It's a creation ordinance, and it's something that is done via common grace. All right, I've asked you to turn to page 16 because we left off with lesson 7 then. And we have been looking at the command given in Ephesians 6.4. You see it near the top there. It says, Fathers... And by extension, mothers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. So if we're going to get our children where they need to go as Christians now to be marriageable and and to raise Christian kids who are independent and social, then this is what the New Testament tells us to do. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Middle of page 16, we saw that we must bring them up. And then if you turn to page 17, we've already seen that in order to do this in a God-honoring way, we must not, because that command says do not exasperate your children, we must not exasperate them. We've looked at what that means. Very bottom of page 17. Thirdly, if we're going to carry out Ephesians 6, 4, it means we must not only just bring them up in general and what was said on page 16 and avoid exasperating them, but we must bring them up in the training that is the discipline of the Lord. And if you turn to page 18, we covered that all the way to about two-thirds of the way down to point D, which is the fourth thing that Ephesians 6.4 says to do. So it says bring them up. On page 16, we talked about that. It says do not exasperate them. On page 17, we talked about that. It uh, says to bring them up in two particular ways, in the training or discipline of the Lord. And at the bottom of page 17 and top of page 18, we've talked about that. And now the fourth thing is bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. And that's where we pick up and where we left off. Now, if you haven't been here for the prior sessions, then you can listen to those as all of our messages, whether our first hour worship messages or second hour messages online at our website, uh, cbctrenton.com, cbctrenton.com. Page 18, we must bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. Literally, the Greek word that's translated instruction means this, to put in mind or to place on the mind. So we par- Christian parents now are to raise our children in the training of the Lord. We saw some of what that means last week the discipline of the Lord, that's teaching with some teeth in it, we say at the top of page 18. But then in addition to that, we're going to now bring them up in the instruction of the Lord. 
And the instruction of the Lord, that word instruction means to put in mind, to place on the mind. So what is it that we are to put in mind for our children, to place on the minds of our children? And you see the answer there on page 18. It is God's communication to us, God's word to us, the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures. So God has given us the task of instructing our children. That means to place in the mind of our children what he has said. And the place where he has said it is in the book, the Bible, the scriptures, um, his communication, his revelation to us. Now, practically, how do I do that? How do I, as a parent, place on the mind of my children what God has said about them, about us as parents, about why God has us here, about how it is they're supposed to go about life in their various relationships and the phases that they go through in life. How am I supposed to do that? Well, one way is a direct way, and that is you instruct them, you teach them. Now, there have been lots of ways over 2,000 years of Christian history that Christians have sought to do this in their homes. Uh, there are devotions where the uh, dad gets together with the family, and every evening, perhaps at dinner, he gets together with the family, and he breaks open the Bible, and he starts going over something. And that's one way that that's been done. It's a, it's a good way. If you're able to pull that off, that's a, that's a great thing. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible it says explicitly to do that. It doesn't tell you how to do this exactly. It tells you to do it. And then you've got to figure out ways to do it. That's one good way to do it. Uh, but one of the reasons I'm convinced that the Bible doesn't say do it exactly this way is this. Depending on where you live and the culture you're in, it may be more or less possible to do that. Uh, it is becoming increasingly more difficult for us to do something like that than it was in, the, say, the 50s when everybody had dinner together and most moms stayed home and prepared the dinner and the table was all there and everybody came home. You sat around and dad was able to do this. So don't raise your hand. When was the last time that happened for you? Okay. I know I'm taxing your memories. Very, very hard to pull off. For a lot of our people. So dinner today for many of us is grabbing Taco Bell on the way home. It's grabbing whatever it is. It's calling on the cell phone to say who's doing the grabbing. What time are we grabbing? When are we doing the handoff? Uh, it's all of that. Who's got, you know, this soccer thing going on? Who's got that thing going on? So a lot of us have that lingering memory of thing, a way, a form of doing this that you feel guilty about because you haven't found yourself able to do it. And I don't think you should feel guilty about that, uh, that you're not able to do that. But you still have to do this. you still got a place on the mind of your children. So what is the a way to do that? And for me, the best way for us to do that was for Kim and for me to talk to our girls on a regular basis, on a regular basis about life and things that are going on in life and place on their minds the Word of God and its application to that stuff. And so we had lots of talks with the girls. And I mentioned to you, I think last week or maybe the week before, that one of the most precious times for me with my girls, and when the three of us think about it, we get a little emotional because that time is now over, where I would take them to their games or bring them home from their games. 
And we would have, depending on where they played, sometimes a long way away, we would have an hour and a half drive together, and we're talking about life. And we're able to bring to bear, what does God say? How do we handle this? Who are we before God? What has Christ done for us? Those kinds of things. And that's an application of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through uh, 6. And the Bible tells us there to impress these commands upon your children. Impress these on your children. And do this when you're lying down and when you're waking up and in your coming and in your going. So that is the way we have done this. And God was pleased to use that in the lives of our girls to bond our relationship, but also to allow me and Kim to, Kim and me to, uh, place in mind the Word of God into our girls. Now, that's directly, that's us doing it. Indirectly, you can have other people involved. You can have the church involved. As we speak right now, those of you who have children are in our Sunday school. And on Wednesday evenings, we have programs for them as well. And that's another time and a way for them to have the Word of God placed on the, on the mind. Encouraging them to read things. Read things that are of Christian instruction. So you're indirectly, you're not teaching them, but you're teaching them to let others teach them through that literature. One of the books that's in the recommended reading list that's at the beginning of your packet is by Susan Hunt, and it's called Honey for the Heart. And that book is about how to find Christian literature for your children and encourage them to read it at the earliest possible ages. So how do I do this? I do this, I'm recommending you do this through the coming and going, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you do it directly that way, but you do it indirectly in partnership with the church, if your kids go to a Christian school, you're partnering with them, um, and also through Christian literature. But notice what I say at the bottom of page 18. As you do this instruction to your children, you need to understand that the Bible deals with every area that they're going through. Every area of their life is addressed in the Bible. Now, the specific thing they're going through is not addressed in the Bible. You know, why Susie broke my iPad. There's no verse on Susie and there's no and there's no mention of iPads. But there is mention in principle of why people do bad things to other people. And you want to teach that principle and then its resolution and the Bible gives you that as well. So the Bible teaches much about broken relationships. And people harming others and harming things that belong to others. And you would want to teach that. So I say the Bible deals with every area of life in precept or in, in precept or in principle. In precept or in principle. Now, precept means this. It means that there's a direct command. Sometimes in the Bible there's a direct command, don't do something or do something. And unfortunately... Those are the commands in the Bible that most of us are familiar with. And so we think the whole Bible is just a bunch of precepts. It's just a bunch of commands that say, do this and don't do that. That's what most people think. And the reason that's bad is because actually very little of the Bible is like that. There is some of that. The Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image. You shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You shall not... Uh, bear false witness, commit adultery, uh, murder, and so on. So you've got direct commands like that. And most people, it's my experience, that most people think the Bible is a bunch of Ten Commandments. But here's the thing. There's a number to that. There's ten of them. 
Okay? And the whole Bible is not commands like that. That's in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, but in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament. You've got some commands. You don't have a ton, but you got some. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Uh, this is God's will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's a command. Abstain from sexual immorality. But even that direct command, abstain from sexual immorality, doesn't say, so limit your internet access. Obviously. So you still have to apply that now in a contemporary context. So even the precepts, the direct commands, have to be applied to a contemporary context. So there are the, the precepts, but most of the Bible's teaching comes not in precept, but in principle. It teaches us who God is, and it teaches us who we are, and it teaches us what our purpose is for him placing us here. And now we have to make decisions and choices based upon the principles that are derived from that. That's the way most of the Bible is set up. So let me give you an example. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10. 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 in your Bible. Some of you are familiar with this, but chapter 8 in 1 Corinthians is dealing with the issue of whether or not Christians should eat meat that came from an animal that had previously been sacrificed to a pagan idol. Well, when was the last time you had to deal with that issue? Right? That's that's a, an issue specific to the city of Corinth. And so in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to them, he tries to help them out with principles to address that. So they've got this problem of in Corinth, they've got this pagan temple and the pagan temple sacrifices animals to the pagan gods and goddesses. And then when they're done, they take the carcasses of these animals to the back of the temple and they've got a meat market there. And people buy the meat and they buy the meat inexpensively. And many of these people in the church in Corinth have been doing that for years, but now they're Christians. And now they go to eat this and they go, wait a minute. This is a demonic lamb. You know, they think. This has been offered to it. I shouldn't eat this. Should I? And if you've ever read through that, Paul says, I'm paraphrasing, it's just meat. And you can go ahead and eat it, actually. Uh, But not everybody knows what I just told you, says Paul. And... If your eating of that meat is going to result in another Christian who is weaker in their understanding, they don't have the knowledge you have, if that's going to result in them violating their conscience because they eat this meat just because you are, or you have them over for dinner and you give this meat and it violates their conscience, then you don't do this. Here's why. Because you love them. And the love principle dictates that you do what's in their best interest, even if that means giving up something that's important to you or that you otherwise would be able to do. There's nothing inherently sinful about it except that it's going to have a bad effect on that guy. Now, do you all see that that's a principle? That in in making my decisions, I need to take into account the effect that what I do has on others. Now, in order for you to teach that to your children, you have to buy into it yourself. 
And the truth is we don't like that principle. What? Other people's situation and lack of growth in the Lord is going to dictate some of the things I do and don't do? Yeah. Because you love them. And Paul says, I will never eat meat as long as I live. If it means causing my brother to stumble, I'm willing to give that up. Chapter 9, he gives examples of things that he's given up. That he has a perfect right to do. Not just meat offered idols, but other things. Uh, In chapter 9, he says that we did not use any of these rights. He repeats that several times. Then he comes into, into chapter 10. The chapter 10 is still this whole larger discussion of things I do that have an effect on other people. And in, chat, in verses 22 and 23 of uh, 1 Corinthians 10, you'll find there a phrase in quotes, all things are lawful for me. Quotes. It's in quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. And it's in quotation marks because it's, that's what the Corinthians, some of the Corinthians would say. Hey, wait a minute. You're telling me I need to refrain from doing some of this stuff because of what it might do to other people or does to other people. But all things are lawful for me. In Christ, I have freedom. Don't inhibit my freedom. And then he quotes them back to them. All things are lawful for me. And then he says, but not all things are expedient. And then he repeats it again. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be brought under the power, the mastery of anything. There is nothing more important to me than the well-being of those that God has given me to minister to. That's what he's saying. And I won't be mastered by anything. I'm willing to give up anything for the sake of that. All right, I'm almost done with this sermon. But the, ser- the, the whole thing ends, chapter 8, 9, and 10. The whole thing ends famously in verse 31 of chapter 10. You guys remember 1 Corinthians 10, 31? Some of you know that verse. Therefore, and before I repeat the rest of it, it starts with therefore. Therefore, in summary, based on all this stuff I've just said, in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 is a summary of three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, all about the same issue. Should I do this or not do this? Even if it's otherwise a good thing to do, it's not inherently sinful, but should I do it? And he's teaching this principle that one of the major things you need to consider is the effect that what you do has on other people. And so therefore, whether you eat, do you see why he's saying eat there now? Whether you choose to eat the meat or not, that's been offered to that idol, whether you eat or you drink, And you remember the other phrase, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, do you see how you could teach that to your kids then? Hey, kids, we've been made for the glory of God. And everything we choose to do and don't do is going to be for the glory of God. So this thing that you're thinking about doing or not doing now, let's talk about how that fits into the glory of God. Well, mom or dad, what is the glory of God? You need to have an answer for that. Fortunately for you, you go to a church where I say this a lot. But the glory of God is the display of his character. The display of what God is like. That's why love is one aspect of his character. And the question is, 
Are you going to be displaying the love of God to these other people if you eat this meat or not? And if you're not displaying the love of God, you're not bringing glory to God because the glory of God is the display of what he is like. And he is that. He is loving. So as we talk about whether we should do this thing or go to that place or any of that, is that going to display the character of God? Now that gets you into a whole big discussion as you're coming home from the volleyball game. What is the glory of God? It's the display of his character. Remind me, what is the character of God? Well, let's talk about that. He's love. He's gracious. He's righteous. He's truthful. He's faithful. And you just go through all of these things that the Bible tells us about the character of God. And then you use that principle to make decisions in the things that you do. Now, because we have this wrong idea that the Bible is just one big book of precepts and commands, and if you have that erroneous notion and you teach that to your children, either by because you taught it or they caught it, just by the way you approach the Bible, either way, if you teach that to them, it's going to have a really bad effect that's going to boomerang on you. It's going to come back around to you. Because here's what your children are going to do. Where does it say in the Bible, I can't? You see, and for most of the things our kids should not do, there's no verse that says you can't. So if you have taught them the Bible is one big book of commands, things you do and you don't do, then they're going to say, show me where it says I can't, can't do or not do, do this. And you're going to go, uh... So, where in the Bible does it say you don't snort cocaine? Just use an extreme example, I hope. You know, the, I'll just, here's the, here's the answer. There is no verse that, that says thou shalt not snort cocaine. Well, then how do I know I'm not supposed to do this? You're going to know it because of principles of the Bible. That's why. But you've got to teach your kids that that's what we're guided by, principles of the Bible. Yes, sir. Right, right, somewhere. But but does it say don't snort cocaine? That's what I said. I know it. Uh, I agree with you. That's what you want to teach your kids. But you don't want to teach your kids that there's some place that says don't snort cocaine because it doesn't say that. You're going to have to teach them the principle of not harming your body. So you teach them that. And then that applies to a lot of things, like snorting cocaine. Also, Galatians 5 19 through 21. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. If you have your Bible, you can look at that. If not, I'll read it for you, but write it down. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Here's why. Here's what verse 19 says. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then I want you to see these three words. It gives this long list of ugly stuff. And then says, and the like. In other words, and stuff like that. I'm giving you a long list so that you get the idea and then you avoid anything that resembles that, anything that's like that. So even Paul, who writes, you know, 13 books in your New Testament, 
does not give a full list of do this and don't do that. And he gives examples. And all of these examples, and you avoid stuff like that. Or things that will harm your body. Or So that's the way the Bible is laid out. And that's why at the bottom of page 18 we say we put in mind, place on the minds of our children these precepts. But there are a few of them we place in mind and we live out in the way we reason the principles of the Bible. So you will, if you do this, you'll do yourself a great favor. <laughs> One, you'll understand the way the Bible's designed to communicate to us, not in do's and don'ts mostly, but mostly in principle. That's one. But also you'll avoid then having your kid come to you and say, where in the Bible does it say? Because you've taught them that most of the decisions they make don't have a verse. They've got a principle. And you will also avoid your kid coming to you and saying this, what's wrong with it? Because you will teach your child to base the decisions he or she makes on the principles of the Word of God, and therefore the question is not what's wrong with it. The question is what? What's right with it? How does what you're doing align with the principles of the Word of God? If you teach your kid to do that, you're now teaching them to think. You're now teaching them to think about what does God say and how does what God says apply to my situation. Now, two ways to do it directly and indirectly the most important person in this process is you as the parent and the direct influence you have on them by your model and your words and the effect of your teaching and the quality of that teaching. If you'll do it the way I've said, you'll have quality teaching. But that's the direct way, and that's the most important and significant effect on your children. But then there's the indirect way, bottom of page 18. You can delegate instruction to others to help you and partner with you on this. So as I mentioned earlier, there's Sunday school and there's Wednesday evening midweek program and all of that. And we're partnering now with families. We're partnering with you to raise your child in the training and instruction of the Lord. We're partnering with you. But hear this, we're not replacing you. You're more important than we are. You are more important in the instructing of your children than their Sunday school teacher is. By far. The truth of the matter is, if those kids are at home, and even if they've got parents who bring them to church, like obviously you do, but if at home they see what they're taught at church contradicted in your life and words, then that Sunday school teacher doesn't have a chance. That youth leader doesn't have a chance. So I say at the bottom, delegation is not abdication. You can delegate certain aspects to people that you partner with. I think that's a wise thing. That's a good thing. That's all good. But you can't abdicate your responsibility as the parent. And, and if you do, this is what will happen. Let me prophesy because I've seen it. You've got little Johnny, little Susie that comes to church and... You know, they, they come to church and they're instructed and all that, but they're, it's not being lived out at home. And when that kid gets an opportunity to make his or her own decisions, their rebellious heart, having not been trained at home, in general, is going to go in a wayward direction. And when that happens, the parent's going to be upset. And guess who they're going to be upset at? 
What has that youth group been doing? I'm telling you, I've seen this happen. Upset at the youth group, the youth leader, the church, the pastor, the Christian school in some cases. Because of what's going on with, with, with my child. Now, one last disclaimer. You can do everything right and your child still go wrong. So I'm not saying if you do it all right, they always turn out right. That doesn't always happen. But generally it does. Generally. Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. A proverb is a general truth. It's not a legal guarantee. But generally that's what happens. All right, page 19 then. For the next remaining weeks of this series, we're going to be looking at part two. Top of page 19, <clears throat> the paideia process. Paideia is a Greek word for child. And this is, a, this is the process now of taking that young little one from being a child to being an, an adult and then becoming marriageable. So this lesson marks the beginning of a new section. Having looked at the specific roles of family, husband, wife, parent, child, this section will expand on the parenting task by focusing on the developmental process of child rearing. We will begin at the end, that is the teen years, keeping in mind the goal that was established back in Lesson 6, that they're going to be marriageable, they're going to move out at some point, they're going to establish an independent home. So we're going to start, we're going to go backwards. What do they have to have at the teen years if they're going to be uh, marriageable? Well, if they're going to get this at the teen years, then what has to have been prepared at the phase prior to that? And if they're going to get what they need at that phase, what needed to be prepared prior to that? So we're going from the end and then moving backwards so that at each phase of the development of a child, we're seeing the things that, by God's grace, we want to instill in them. So here's an overview of the developmental process. Scripture teaches that the raising of a child is a process. Recall from last week's lesson that parents are to, quote, bring them up, Ephesians 6.4. The Bible assumes such a process when in 1 Corinthians 13.11 it says, When I was a child, I talked as a child, thought as a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. So the assumption here, you know, just from observation but also from Scripture, is that this is a developmental process. Children undergo then phases of development that necessitate different emphases. Depending on where the child is in their development, there are different things that are emphasized. If you emphasize the right things at each of those phases, you're preparing for the next one, is the idea. In each phase, there are three areas of development, spiritual and social and personal. So uh, you've got three phases we're going to see, but at each of those three phases, there are three things that you're looking to do. And still a spiritual component, a social, and a, and a personal component. Now, here's just an overview of those phases. And I made these up, the names. I didn't make up the phases. Uh, the phases are used by lots of you know, child-rearing experts and so on, Christian child-rearing experts that say, this is the way children are made, and this is what they, and this is what they go through. But I call them this. The first phase is what I call... I probably could come up with a softer term, the control phase. But you see it's ages zero to six. At this stage, the parent's primary role is authority figure, exercising control. 
So in that, you are letting the child know, and you'll, you'll see, I hope, as I go on this, I'm a very soft and gentle guy. So I sound harsh when I say this, control phase. But you are in this phase making sure the child knows who's boss. You're letting them know that a good God has given them a very good gift in giving them parents who love them and who are going to direct them in the right way. And when you go in the wrong way, we're going to redirect you because God has placed us in control. We're an authority in your life. And that's a good thing. And you want them to come to understand that. Now, we're going to, each of these phases, I've got a lesson on, okay? So we'll talk about that phase in its own lesson. It's actually the last one, because remember, we're we're reversing the direction. So the last lesson's on that. And it's on disciplining your kids when they're little. But just for now, understand that's hard to do. And here's why. Because they'll resist that. And here's why they'll resist that. Because they're sinful. And the reason they're sinful is because you're their parents. And the reason you're sinful is because we go all the way back to our parents, Adam and Eve. But in this phase, you're going to have to do what is hard and what is contrary to what your child initially wants. They don't want to be told no. They don't want to be punished for disobeying. They obviously don't want that. You didn't want that when you were a kid, and neither did I. But I needed it. And you need to give it. So in the first phase, you're establishing the idea that God is good and God has given you these good people. If you're a single parent, then you. If it's a husband and a wife, then mom and dad. But it's given these authority figures in your life for your good. Then there's the formative phase. 7 to 12, at this stage, the parent's primary role is as a coach, a mentor who is shaping behavior. Now, so we got a whole lesson devoted to that, but we're trying to develop character now in this child so that their choices are not always made based upon a command from dad or mom, do this or don't do that but rather because character is being formed in them and they're making choices out of that character. That's why I call it formative. You're forming that. It's the formation of this character within them. And then you go to the third phase, teen phase. At this stage, the parent's primary role is a sage. I like that. I'm the sage or an advisor and you're exercising influence. Again, it's at this point, if if things have gone well in the first two phases and you develop this character and they understand who you are and they've come to respect that, now you can advise your children and they can make a lot of decisions. And you don't have to dictate every decision or even most decisions that they make, but rather you talk through the decisions with them based upon all the other stuff that you have taught them over these over these years. That was our experience with our with our girls who are now 21 and 18. So those are the phases. Now, we've got to quit, but here's what uh, we need to understand about those phases. If you skip any of those phases, the next one is all the harder. If you skip the control phase, the formative phase is going to be all the more difficult. If you skip both of them and you get into the teen years, it's going to be all the more difficult. So resist the temptation, friends, to take the easy route 
And that temptation will occur the moment you bring the child home from the hospital, literally. The moment you bring the child home from the hospital, you're going to be faced with, am I going to do the hard work of redirecting this child's sinful will in a God-honoring direction? Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be their will against your will at times. And then if you get a strong-willed child, yikes. We had that. And you know why we had it? Because Kim is like that. (laughs) Now, you guys know Kim. And she's really sweet. She is very sweet. But she was not always like that. When she was in the control phase, she wanted control. How do I know this? Her mother told me. And your mother undoubtedly uttered the prayer that many a mother has uttered. It's called the maternal curse. I hope you grow up and have one just like you. And lo and behold, that happened to us. But here's the cool thing, and then we'll be done. I'm embarrassing Kim back here, but you would never know that Kim was like that as a little girl, ordering people around, the kindergarten teacher calling her mother, saying, we got a problem. They have nap time, and they lay their little mats out, and Kim's ordering all the kids as to which mat they're going to go to. That's Kim. But her mom and her dad dealt with it so that you wouldn't know it now. She's not now what she could have been. She's not now what she would have been had her parents not dealt with it. Same thing with our girls then. Our girls, you look at our girls, and I'm a proud dad, but I'm mostly thankful to the Lord for what he taught Kim, what he taught me through our parents, through his word, for us to instill in the girls. But just understand this. When you look at Laney and Annie, they are not what they could have been. They both could have gone in different directions than they're in right now. But God gave these phases and he gave us the responsibility of bringing them up and directing them and taking them where they are and looking at their propensities and looking at their desires. And both of them are completely different and guiding those through these phases. If we don't actively do that, then our children will go in the way of their natural bent. And what does the Bible teach about their natural bent? What nature do your children have? Right? A sin nature. That's where they'll naturally go. All right, so we'll begin. We'll pick up in the middle of page 19 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to think about these important matters in this area in which you have blessed us to be parents and grandparents. Thank you, Lord, for entrusting these precious ones to us. And thank you, Lord, for not leaving us blind and groping in the dark. You've given us your word. You've given us its precepts and its principles to apply to this task. But, Lord, we need your grace to do it. We absolutely cannot do it. We can't live it and model it and instruct according to it without your aid. And so, Lord, we ask for your grace. Go with us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.